You're listening to Sarah Hagen backstage with interviews and insights from years inside the music industry. Join Sarah as she talks with masters of their crafts, finding out what makes them tick both inside and outside of the music business. This week, Sarah talks with Taku Hirano. Welcome to Sarah Hagen backstage. My guest today, Taku Hirano, is a world-renowned percussionist known for his incredibly diverse background and for playing in the studio and on stage with some amazing artists such as Mick Fleetwood, Whitney Houston, Stevie Wonder, Dr. Dre, and many more. Today we will talk to Taku about his percussion education, his experience playing these many genres of music, and his new album which is coming out in October. So come along with me as I catch up with Taku Hirano. Taku, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so great to see you, Sarah. So great to see you too. I feel like, you know, it's been it's been quite a long time, but I have been keeping up with you on social media. So I feel like, you know, we're connected in that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's the way people connect nowadays. That's how we keep up with each other for sure. Right, so, right. It's so weird because then you'll run into people like, a year later, they're totally caught up on everything you've been doing, but you haven't seen them like in ages. So I, I, I know it's yeah. it is it's nice, like it's a familiar feel feeling at least. But it is a little strange when someone says, "Oh yeah, I saw that this and that, and this happened," and you're thinking, "Oh yeah, I did put that out there." So <laughs> no, totally, absolutely. Totally. Um, yeah. So. How have you been? Tell me how how you've been through you know the past year and a half with with quarantine and all of that. Give us an update on you. Um, big changes. I uh, relocated from New York to Los Angeles uh, mid mid shutdown. Actually, I was in New York for ten plus years, uh, having moved from LA to New York, uh, and then everything shut down on March whatever seventeenth and. Uh, by July, early July last year, uh, my wife and I moved to LA. And, um, you know, it's been a good move uh, in terms of just space, weather, sanity, you know, it's, yes. it's, as opposed to living in Manhattan where it's really tight quarters and, right. you know, so we, we were like, we, we got out to LA before last fall and last winter. So there wasn't any of the shutdown in the middle of winter factor for us. So. Right. So that was good for, um, you know, mental health. Mm -hmm, <laughs> and, I bet. And um, work-wise, I've been steadily getting a little bit more and more busy. Uh, the funny thing is, like, I tell people, you know, I told people, hey, I moved to L.A. And then all of a sudden, I got this influx of recording work. Well, all the recording work is remote. So I'm kind of like, I could have been doing this out of New York. <laughs> you know, but like, hey, you moved to L.A., great. You know, can you play on this project for me? I'm just like. Yeah, I could have played on it anyway, but <laughs> I'll take the 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 energy shift that's coming from the universe to me. And yeah, so there it's been, I've worked that's on some, a lot of great projects and some film and TV stuff, some TV cues. I uh, worked on Leanne Rimes. Actually, did two albums actually. So I did a lot, a ton of percussion for that. So wow, oh, that's yeah. so great. I'm so yeah. I'm so glad that you've been keeping busy, and I I understand the the um you know, the shift from New York to, to LA, avoiding the winter for so many reasons, um, yeah. living in the Northeast. I know all about that. So yeah. yeah, and you do too, because you were at Berkeley 
of yeah. course, for uh, for your college um, time. And yeah. speaking of um, moving and being in different places, I think your your background is so incredibly interesting. Um, born in Osaka, Japan, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you, and correct me if you're wrong, but you came to California and then moved to Hong Kong, right? Yeah. Okay. I came, to, I came to California when I was like three months old. So I have okay. technically, I've never lived in Japan. So kind of culturally, in a lot of ways, I'm very American. Mm -hmm. Japanese was my first language. I didn't learn to speak English until preschool, kindergarten. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, and then I did K through sixth. And then my father, my father's in the textiles trade and we ended up moving to Hong Kong on a business transfer. So I did middle school and half of high school in Hong Kong mm -hmm. and then family got transferred back to California and then I finished up high school and went to Berkeley. Um, I, throughout that in, almost the entire time I, I was playing music. I started music at the age of seven. Mm -hmm. So I'll definitely, by the time I moved to Hong Kong from middle school, I was already way into percussion. So That's incredible. And I mean, it just, being a percussionist and, and having kind of the background that you've had, I'd imagine that that really affected your, um, your technique and your style and the, the kind of vast like genre of music, genres of music that you play. Definitely. Uh, I started out classical, like my first instrument was marimba. I, my first instrument at seven years old was piano. Mm -hmm. But at age nine, I started percussion. Yeah, my first instrument was keyboard instrument. It was, it was marimba. Uh, and then straight on to, or not straight on to leaving behind, but adding on to marimba, concert mm -hmm. snare, timpani, and drum kit. So, um, so yeah, and so just I kind of had the formal education and, but I was always into like wanting to learn new styles of music and listening to all different sorts of things, even as a kid. So I had, I obviously listened to a lot of classical, a lot of jazz growing up. And then whatever was being a kid of the eighties, whatever was on the radio and whatever was on yeah. the TV. <laughs> um, and then when I got into hand percussion around, um, I moved back from Hong Kong to California and I went to a school of the arts and they had a really strong jazz program and Latin jazz program. So that's when I got into like Brazilian and Afro-Cuban music. Mm -hmm. So that's when everything kind of opened up and then my whole concept of jazz opened up into like world music. It's amazing. And I, I love that you were like the first um, hand percussion principal to graduate from Berkeley. Like that's just, yeah. it's so significant. <laughs> and. Uh, were there programs developed after to foster more graduates? Oh, definitely. definitely. Okay. They were already had um, some percussion, hand percussion classes, but they were all electives. Mm -hmm. um, when I when I got accepted to Berkeley, I basically had to choose between concert percussion, uh, jazz vibraphone, or drums, drum set. <laughs> right. And so I was like totally burnt out on classical percussion. I, I had been training from probably about eighth grade, like on, I was like, I'm going to Juilliard, going to Juilliard. So I was like, already like, I was studying with the principal tiffinist of the Hong Kong Philharmonic um, and just doing like Tony Cerrone etudes, like, you know, for yeah. like ninth grade and, yeah. and trying to figure all that stuff out. So it was just like, by the time I got really into like Latin jazz in 11th and 12th grade, and I got to Berkeley, like that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't have that as a principal instrument. So I entered as a drum set major. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, I just took a bunch of electives and then 
it turned out my second semester at Berkeley was when Giovanni Hidalgo started teaching there. Mm. And uh, so I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't even know. I bet you he's only going to be there for like a year or less just because, you know, he's so in demand. He's a master, <clears throat> master mm -hmm. player. So I diverted like everything to studying with him. So like I was taking like every elective, every group class he taught um, and took private lessons with him, all as electives because I was a drum set major. And then um, he ended up staying at Berkeley for four years, and it was the four years that I was there. So wow. that was amazing. I actually studied privately with Giovanni Hidalgo for four years. And um, my second year of college, Jamie Haddad started teaching there. Mm -hmm. so, um, that I got really into a lot of the Middle East, the North African Middle Eastern frame drumming and concepts of like South Indian percussion that he had studied over there. So. I got into basically world percussion with him. And then by my junior year, that's when they announced they're gonna start a hand percussion principle. I had a, I had accrued all these like elective credits. Mm -hmm. And um, by then I knew my major was gonna be what they call professional music, which is kind of a build your own major. And I, so I, my major was essentially uh, a performance slash music business major. So that's mm -hmm. those, with an advisor, I made those into my requirements to graduate. And then coupled with changing my principal instrument to hand percussion, where there's probably only three of us when they, they rolled that out. My, wow. My year, I, I had two years left of college and I was like, unless I wanna like, you know, stay longer, like I'm gonna have to cram everything in, in those latter two years of college. So, so yeah, my last two years of college, I essentially did three years and two years, if that makes sense. I did two summers in a row, which were full-fledged semesters in terms right. of like, Right, that's incredible. Me, yeah, so that's what allowed me to graduate and walk on time was because I essentially crammed in a whole extra year of college <laughs> to, to finish the major. So that's really kind of why I'm the first hand percussion major, because I did the whole major in, in three years. Wow. As, as, a, as a degree student, you know, there, I think there are other, there are a couple other people who walked that were percussionists, but they were in a diploma program, so they didn't get a bachelor's degree. So their requirements were not as strenuous as, as a degree major. So, so yeah, absolutely, I I get that, and it's amazing. I mean, Giovanni Adalgo. I remember um, when he was at Berkeley, and yep. it, it's just, I mean, to have the chance to study with him and. Um, I, I saw him perform. The last time I saw him perform was at uh, PASIC. And it was just so incredible. You know, he's just, he's still the master. Um, yeah. So, yeah. and always teaching, always teaching. You know, yeah. the it doesn't matter. We would be at dinner and he would be teaching. We would be waiting to go on stage and he's teaching. It's like, you know, it just, it's just a constant thing. And I just think that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Definitely has such a joy for just, music and 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 also just um sharing it with people you know his love his love of music so it was great, yeah. great as a teacher you know absolutely and and you studied with um uh alan dawson as well which is, is i did yeah i got to berkeley my freshman year and i you know some of my mentors uh including adugu chancellor he was a mentor of mine back in california Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, I'm going to Berkeley. What do I need to do? Who do I need to seek out? And they're like, absolutely, Alan Dawson. You have to, he no longer teaches at Berkeley, so you need to seek him out. And 
I don't even know how I did it. Like I, I'm trying to remember, like I asked around, this is like pre Google searches and <laughs> even cell phones. I don't think so. It was like, I think I like asked around right soon after I got to Berkeley and someone gave me his phone number. I cold called him from uh, a pay phone in the hallway outside my dorm room. And, you know, he started giving me directions. I had to grab some pad of paper, do it. And then I had to, you know, he, he lived about, where did he live? He lived in Lexington. So then I had to figure out how to get there, you know, wow. back time. Like it was insane. I was like thinking about it now. I was like, okay, I, those, for those watching who know Boston or go to Berkeley, it's like, you know, just that you're like, okay, I'm a freshman. I'm at that time. I was probably still 17. And mm-hmm. I was like, you know, that I was like, okay, I've never really taken the, <clears throat> the T the, the subway system. So it's like, okay, yeah. take the green line to the red line, go to the end. And then, walk 20 minutes like through the suburbs in the woods to a house you know <laughs> it was it was insane i don't even know how i did it you know i can imagine that and <laughs> i think that's so incredible that like as a 17 year old you had the the spirit to like pick up the a pay phone and make a cold call like that and then just do what it took to get there right. um and you know public transportation back then yeah. too wasn't as as easy as it is or yeah, coming from the burbs and, you know, and, and yeah. well, California is like, I never yeah, bought a bus token before, you know, so it was, it was like, right. okay, I figure out how to do this and get there on time, you know, yes. so back time, how long, yeah, so it was interesting, it was like, but yeah, so I studied with him my, I, definitely my freshman year, like I, I, for a full year, I studied with him, so I, I still, somewhere in my, in boxes, I have like all my notes, handwritten notes by him for every lesson and whatnot. So I love that. That's incredible. Um, And one other thing too, that I just want to mention, excuse me, is your time in Cuba because Cuba is just, it's musically so fascinating. Um, The, 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 I love Cuban music, the style of Cuban music, the percussion involved in it. It's just so, it's so percussion heavy. Um, and it's just so moving. There's something about it that's so moving and unique, you know, to, to just to that place. I can't even imagine. Um, and you were there for a while, weren't you? I was there for a month. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had already moved to LA after college. I had already gotten my first couple of gigs. I'd already done a couple tours. Um, and I had a break and, um, I've been wanting to go to Cuba for a while and there was a program like a drumming and dancing uh, program that, that they had organized. They, I don't know, I forgot the name of the company, but, and they uh, had permits through the U S treasury department. And, you know, you you basically would pay the organizer and they would figure it all out and and, and get Mm -hmm. you to Cuba. Mm -hmm. And so I took part in that program. And um, it's interesting. I haven't been back since, and it now at this point, it's been decades. So yeah. but it was interesting. Like it was definitely a stamp in time. Have you? I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Buena Vista Social Club. I but, have not yet. Oh, okay. Uh, great documentary. Um, and it turns out I was there like maybe a month after they filmed all that footage. So like watching oh. that documentary was like that. It was exactly when I was there, and that's what it exactly look like and and whatnot so it was interesting you know same thing like some of the things like looking back like 
I don't know. I, I, I can't say I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like, how did, how the heck did I do that? Like finding, I was part of a music program, but then I had to seek out, I wanted to seek out uh, Changuito as a teacher. Mm -hmm. He didn't teach the program. So I had to ask around and figure out how to get in touch with them. I don't even remember how that happened, but I think there's no phones. I think somebody from the front desk of the, the um, hostel that we were staying at got in touch with them for me. And <laughs> then they relayed to somebody else, you know, come to my house on this such and such a day. I be, I became friends with this guy that was hanging out at the program who was, who was a local who spoke English. And he was like, Oh, I'll translate for you. And I was like, I, I don't have any really much to pay you. And he's like, no, 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 I'm just going to come hang out. He just hung out with me for the whole month translating wow. lessons and um, hooking up, you know, places to eat for us. Like, because then there weren't really any restaurants open. So you would go to like people's private homes to mm -hmm. these and he would hook up dinner for us. And it would just, yeah, I don't even know how he did it. And then, and then like driving it, getting in a, in a, it's not even a taxi really. It's like private cars were rolling down the street and you would just flag them down and tell them how, where you're going. You're essentially hitchhiking. Hitchhiking, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so just like, yeah, I ended up like going out to his house multiple times and studying with him. And because I had four years with Giovanni, he took a liking to me immediately. And mm -hmm. I had a lot of techniques down in my hands already. And so, mm -hmm. So it was nice. It was it was great that like um, I had all these like, you know, I don't want to say horror stories, but you know, he's been known to be really hard on students. So mm -hmm. I went with a little like trepidation, and uh, you know, he was just seen genuinely psyched that this Japanese guy took that much interest, you know, in in his techniques and and just absolutely music in general. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know you you probably approached it the way that you that you approach everything else else, which is yeah. authentically. You know, you were there um, purely to learn, and and I'm sure that that was appreciated. Just like those calls that you made, and um, that's just yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, I just I give you so much credit for doing that and seeking Thank out you. that that teaching yeah. absolutely, and as a teacher. I can imagine that they loved that too because you did what was necessary to to find them and connect with them and to to yeah. get there um, and to get to Cuba in itself is a is an amazing thing. So yeah, I mean, but that's what it's about, really, right? I mean, in, in kind of the age old way of a, almost apprenticeship, it's it's like you don't you have to earn your keep with with, yes. with a teacher, you know, and so. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think a lot of that is lost now with the immediacy of YouTube and and even access. You know that mm -hmm. people expect to have access to me or to other people who who are you know. Um, and I'm not I'm not like putting myself on a pedestal, but at the same time, it's like I definitely it, it was just a different decorum when I came mm -hmm. up. Absolutely, yeah. yes, I'm sure you had a level of respect and and oh, yeah. and um, you know reverence, right yeah. for for the their expertise and their uh, their experience, and I think I think you're right. With the immediacy of things, mm -hmm. it makes everything seem so accessible. Like you don't have to work for it. You don't have to put in the time. Whereas, you know this this field of work, it is all about putting in the work, um, yep. gaining the experience and the years of of learning technique, and especially with what you do with percussion. Mm -hmm. I feel like. It's so much about technique 
of course. Yeah. Playing drum set, playing other instruments, of course, technique is involved. But when it comes to hand percussion, especially in percussion instruments, it's like you have to have that technique to get the right sounds and, yeah. um, you know, and, and just to make it authentic. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you, and you've definitely done that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing I think is really interesting. So I, I think when I met you, you were um maybe i'm trying to remember what you were doing at the time but i but maybe the ar ramen tour i think okay that would have been 2010 2011. yeah so probably and and maybe were you doing fleetwood mac before that or was that after was it i didn't oh no fleetwood mac my first time out with them was oh three Oh, three. Okay. So maybe you were with Fleetwood Mac when I met you. And then, and then, um, Slumdog Millionaire came out and that tour yep. happened. Okay. So that's, so that was the succession. But I just remember thinking, um, you were out, you know, with these really incredible acts, um, and the diversity between the genres that you were playing was always fascinating to me because you would go from one thing to the next. And I would think, oh, Oh, and now he's doing this, and you know, now he and he's out with, um, you know, you were doing the uh, Michael Jackson uh, yeah. Cirque du Soleil tour, and it was yeah. always something like different and yeah. new, and it and it kind of struck me because your your background is so diverse in your styles of playing, and you know, you're you're well versed in like you know, West African and and North Indian and Afro Cuban styles, and then you put it to use in these different genre, genres of music. Um, yeah. And it's just so incredible to me. So I just have to point that out. Um, yeah, to go from was, one thing to, to the next. It was, it was funny. I know, like, I did, the first time I went on tour with Fleetwood Mac, I, I came from Lionel Richie, working with him on and off for three or four years, jumped to, Fleet, jumped to Fleetwood Mac. So it was, like, very decidedly, like, pop, R&B, mm -hmm. but pop, kind of adult contemporary pop. To Fleetwood Mac, adult contemporary rock. Yeah. Then from there, I jumped straight to Bette Midler, which was like highly orchestrated show tunes. I'm playing like five <laughs> xylophone, timpani, and pop percussion. You know, like yes. electronic pads and congas and whatnot, and and small percussion. But it was like going from playing like Fleetwood Mac rock tunes to like you know um, spoofs on on famous show tunes. So. Bet Midler's running around like on in a wheelchair with, with a mermaid tail on. It was just it was like <laughs> it was like a huge change from one year to the next. And I, I literally like we weren't even finished with the Fleetwood Mac tour. We still had makeup dates, and I was already in world tour rehearsals with Bet. And it was the same tour manager between the two, so he and I were like flying back and forth. Like so, mm -hmm. out that I would get a couple days off from rehearsals to fly out and do a, a one off of Fleetwood and shoot right back to rehearsal. So it was like in those things, it was like wow, like. It's, it was a little uh, discombobulating for sure, musically. Yeah. So, yeah. I bet. Yeah. Because you're like, the mindset is switching back and forth too. Totally. When you're doing two of those things at once. Um, yeah. And then on top of it, like the, the work that you did with Dr. Dre and, you know, um, it just, it's, it's just so different. And then like you just mentioned, you incorporate the electronic pads into what you do too. So, you yep. know, you have this like very traditional, hand percussion, and then you are like using the electronic pad, which I love. Yeah. 
And the Dr. Dre thing was interesting because I ended up using like a lot of classical percussion techniques when I was recording with him. So like, I mean, case in point, there's one tune on that 2001 album called The Watcher. And he fell in love with, I'll just kind of figure out what to play. I was like, oh, I'll play tambourine on the song. And I did a, a, a thumb roll, you know, which is mm-hmm. pretty standard, like with, with concert percussion, but he had never heard it before. He's like, do that again, you know? <laughs> and so the whole groove that I played was just like a thumb roll into beat four. I played other percussion parts, but that was like mm-hmm. almost consistent throughout the whole, whole song. And side note is the way Dr. Dre worked at at least at that time was that even if I was playing like a one bar pattern or a two bar pattern over and over again, like, you know, normally they, they say, Oh, play for 16 bars. We'll find the best two bars. We'll cut it, paste it, loop and, you know, cut it, loop it, just paste mm-hmm. it all the way to the song. Um, he had me play the song from top to bottom wow. every, time, for every song I did. So, and that's really smart because first of all, you get a human feel because every, almost everything else rhythmically is programmed, mm-hmm. but also like I'll naturally dig in a little harder on a chorus or, or I'll back off if, if it's just, you know, or whatever. So I'm kind of, even though I'm playing the exact same thing, like I'll play ever so slightly with a feel or dynamically. And he kept all of that, which was quite amazing. So, but, but all that to say like, yeah, there are a couple, like I, I did some classical percussion techniques for Dr. Dre, you know? <laughs> And, and that ended up, that sample ended up being used for a Jay-Z track. Uh, Jay-Z actually did like the Watcher part two or, or whatever, volume two, uh, as an addendum on, on one of Jay-Z's albums. And he had Dr. Dre produce that track. And, and Dre actually ended up taking the sample of me for that and using that for Jay-Z's track too. So, yeah. so it's That, is, that so, is super cool. I yeah. love that. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that song. Yeah. and hear it you know so often i'll hear uh something in a song and and uh, you know 99 of the time it's some kind of like drumming or percussion thing that just yeah. sticks with me but um i'll have to go back and check that out that sounds it's literally just like a real loose like almost like a five-stroke roll into b4 like every every b4 or every every other b4 or something like that but yeah that's what he wanted throughout the whole song that is cool and i love that he kept i love that he kept your you know live um track too because that is so rare nowadays and and it does give a human feel to it too so yeah yeah i don't know if he still does that i have no idea but back then when i recorded that's that's what all my percussion parts yeah there's other songs i was playing kibasa it was like one two four one two all the way through he just like hit record, start the song. And then I'd just be like, okay, don't screw up. You know, like <laughs> be really consistent all the way through. I'd look up and sometimes he's like bobbing his head. Sometimes he'll like walk out the room. He'll just like disappear and he'll come back for the tracks over. And he's, he's like, all right, great. Let's move on. You know? So it was, just it was an interesting experience. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I feel like you've had so many of those interesting experiences <laughs> and I, um, I so many times have been watching like an award show or some kind of presentation and all of a yep. sudden you're there and I'm like, oh my gosh, look, it's Taku. <laughs> yeah, so, that's the other thing. I had a lot of calls to do like kind of house band situations for, um, yeah, awards, Grammys, American Music Awards, that kind of stuff. And um, right. and then a few, a couple different TV shows like competitive shows. Um, I did. I was in the house band for Showtime at the Apollo, the reboot they did out of out of the Apollo Theater with Steve Harvey. 
on Fox. And then I did another show called The Four. That was um, P. Diddy. It was hosted by Fergie, P. Diddy, DJ Khaled, and Megan Trainer were the mm-hmm. judges. And then I was in the house band for that. So that's super yeah. cool. Yeah. That is so really that. cool. Yeah. Um, and with, with productions like that Michael Jackson, um, the Cirque du Soleil mm-hmm. tour, and I'm imagining the same thing with that, the AR Raman tour. Um, yeah. I, I would imagine a lot of what you're doing is coordinating with the performers because it's like so performance based, right? Those kinds of, <clears throat> of apps. Um, Definitely. Um, with the Cirque thing, obviously Michael Jackson was no longer. Um, that was a very interesting project. It was, it was a co-production between Cirque du Soleil and the Michael Jackson estate. And the musical designer, Kevin Antunes, he, they gave, the estate gave him access to all the multi-tracks for every Michael Jackson and, and Jackson 5 and Jackson's song there was which is insane we got to actually like look at the look at the sessions like on the computer and even like solo parts and essentially they hired all the the core of the band were all former michael jackson band members including greg fillingaines as the musical director and they had don boyette on bass who did the bad and dangerous tours um uh jonathan moffitt was on drums and you know Mm -hmm. he did did, uh, I think he did three Jackson's tours, uh, Destiny, Triumph, and Victory, and then he did um, History Tour and This Is It. And um, John Clark was a rhythm guitarist. He did the Bad Bad and uh, Dangerous Tour. So it was, it was amazing, first of all, to be in a band with those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hear all the stories about the recording sessions and everything. It was just absolutely amazing. And then to play that music. And we essentially, like, since everything was multi-tracked, it was basically like, okay, I'll cover, you know, these specific parts on percussion. And then they'll be like, okay, great. And then they'll just fade them out. And so I'm playing them live, but everything else is there. So including Michael's voice. So as you're playing the music, like you're, you're all of a sudden part of the album, you know, and it was just, it was really insane to play that. And then have like, the visuals of Cirque du Soleil happening directly in front of you to what, what you're playing. It was just, it was so powerful. It was an amazing two year ride that I did. It, it lasted for three. I jumped off after two years, but yeah. That's amazing. Was- I, I do remember seeing clips um, of that and it just looked really incredible. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, people talk about their first like cassette tape, people of, you know, a certain age um, talk about <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the first cassette tape that they that they ever got and and my first um cassette tape I actually got two for a birthday and it was Michael Jackson and Madonna so like yeah. when I think about Michael Jackson it's like you know part of the soundtrack uh soundtrack of of the you know my childhood and then Jonathan Moffat was doing both the Michael Jackson and Madonna gigs which was yeah. you know right? that's, I that's, know. that's Moffat on uh Who's that girl? Papa don't preach. Uh, like a prayer. That's him drumming on those albums. Are uh, those those oh. songs? And then that's and then, you know, on the flip side, like he was with Michael for you know the tours and with the Jacksons. It was it was, it was amazing to actually just getting to pick his brain, just hang out with him every night. Yeah, yeah. and he must, he must have stories, just you know, <clears throat> stories for days from from that oh. time time period. Oh, um, yeah. and, 
and that's that's one other thing too that's really cool about being the percussionist is also getting to accompany and play with and um you know just be with these other drummers too who are you know who you look up to like jonathan moffat and who you know yeah. look to you as well so and I, I saw you recently played with um peter erskine right you were yeah i, I sat in with, with the monkestra and he was playing and that was a huge i mean i'm a huge peter erskine fan i never met him so i was like just geeked that i got to you know meet him yeah i liked i tell people like because i mean i started playing drum set when i was nine when i was mm -hmm. i didn't st i started playing hand percussion when i was 15. i made that my bread and butter but just just to say that like having been a drummer first now mm -hmm. I get to be I get the best seat in the house because I'm usually are sitting right next to the drummer or right you know so I've played with the best drummers some of the best drummers in the world you know I, I seriously like my mentors in Dugu Chancellor yes but like I played next to J.R. Robinson Steve Ferroni Ricky Lawson um I'm trying to think who else I mean my dear friend Gordon Campbell mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the list just goes, I guess I could just go from tour to tour. Oscar Seaman, right. <laughs> with, um, uh, Big Fleetwood, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so anyway, it's just like, uh, I, I've gotten to play with so many amazing drummers, Kurt Biscara, Abel Boreal Jr. Um, anyway, it, the list just is, is endless, you know? For so, sure. Yeah, so it's amazing. I've had an amazing, uh, it's been an amazing treat to, to have the best seat in the house as a drummer. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, you know, the, the level of talent on the stage when you're up there and these other, these, these other drummers are up there with you. And I always, like I said, every time I see you on TV, I'm like, Oh, look who that is, you know, and, <laughs> and you're always playing next to someone fantastic. Um, and speaking of Oscar Seton, um, Lionel yeah. Richie's drummer, he's just such an amazing person too. And I have to say, Lionel Richie is one of the nicest human oh, beings on the planet. Um, well, yeah. just so, so it's not even just the drummers that you played with, it's just some of the, the greatest musicians and the greatest people yeah. um, as well. And shout out to Mick Fleetwood too. I just oh, I love Mick as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've definitely been like really blessed that I've worked with a lot of great artists. Like everyone has been so cool. Like. I have peers who are like, oh my God, I couldn't stand working with this artist or it's and that the other, you know, horror mm -hmm. stories of being how they're treated. And, and like, I've, I, in that respect, like I've had a really like kind of blessed, you know, ride of it so far that like every artist I've worked for has been really cool. Um, you know, some of them are harder than others in one way or in more particular or whatever, but you got to respect that, you know, mm -hmm. they're, on the marquee and the, they're hard workers um and then yeah but i've had there's definitely been some artists that have just been so cool like that are really just fun in, in various ways lionel's always such a great guy mick fleet was such a gentleman bet miller's a hoot she's hilarious <laughs> and, you know, bet's tours are always like filled with practical jokes and, and and yeah so it's just like touring with whitney houston was great and i mean like at the top of the tour when i favorite memories was like everybody in for the most part in the band were like new members when I joined the band. And so rehearsals were so intense. And then we just went straight into shows 
and it was like tons of press all around here and whatnot. And so once we got to kind of a smaller city in upstate New York for a show, it was like, she actually had time. She didn't have like all these obligations and press hounding her and following her around and whatnot. So I remember like we had just gotten to the hotel. It was at Saratoga Springs. I'm not sure, but we just got in the hotel and then the tour manager's like, boss wants to see you guys. You got to be down here in 15 minutes. We're like, oh, wow, what's going on? And then we got down, they had this little mini bus and it was just the band and the dancers. And they're like, they're like, you're going somewhere. So we just, they took us out to like just this city park in the middle, in the middle of town. And we're like, okay, what's going on? And then Whitney pulls up in a limo and she had like a whole picnic set up for us. Pull, you know, her people pull it out of the trunk of the limo, set it up and then the get, and brought like, sent, sent a runner out to a toy store. got a bunch of Frisbees and <laughs> balls and soccer balls are just like, oh my God, this is like amazing, you know, and that wow. was the kind of person she was. So it was like, those are the types of things like, like that you kind of get a glimpse of just, you know, how kind of regular they are and how, how good they are, you know, so it was really, yeah. it was a great time. That's yeah. incredible. I love that story. It, it yeah. is, it's, it is amazing to get to know the people that you're working with and um, to know them as people and not just as musicians and, yeah. you know, as you mentioned, some sometimes um, musicians can have quirks or they can have, you know, their personality might be tough in one way or another. And you um, and I am sure know a lot of musicians who are very particular because this is like, this is their craft and this means so much yeah. to them and, and they want it the way that they want it. And so um, that part of it is one thing, but then them as a human being is, is uh is another thing. And it, it's great that you've had those really wonderful experiences too. And, um, that's the one thing I do enjoy about being on tour as opposed to just being like a session guy, especially as a percussionist. A lot of times when I'm doing recording sessions, like I, I definitely never see the artist. I usually just go in and I see a producer and a few other people I go in and I, I overdub everything for the most part. Mm -hmm. but being on tour, like you get to like interact with the artist, you're on stage with them, you're, you're off stage with them, you're traveling together sometimes, you know, it's just like, you really get to know them. You get to be kind of part of this, if not part of the, the family, then you get to be at least part of this bubble for this, that point in time and travel together for months or years even. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. So it's, it's definitely, yeah. And we were talking um, before we came on to record, we were chatting a little bit about how small the industry really is and how all these people are connected and everyone knows each other. And, you know, so it is it is amazing when you can make those connections and it feels like you have you have those connections for life, really, you know, yeah. a lot of times. Um, but I love that you've had those really great experiences and um and I was going to say, I think that your personality really lends itself to that as well, because you're, you're, you know, you're easygoing and you're very professional. And I think probably the people that you work with really appreciate that too. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have to, it does take a certain personality, um, or let me say certain personality traits don't work well for touring and, you know, no matter how good you are. So, right. For the most part, the most of the people I know who do the most work, they're pretty easygoing and cool and get along with others. And, and you know, if you're going to be on a tour bus, you know, for overnight drives and being close quarters and sharing dressing rooms and whatnot, you know, then 
you're you're basically uh, punctual, you know, handle your business right, and are amenable to uh, and able to pivot. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, at the same time, you know, be very professional and be cool and easygoing. That's pretty much what it is. You know, there's not it's not like a huge secret. No, right. Yeah. But that's that's a great yeah. way to put it, though. That's that's really yeah. great advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. And so and one other thing I want to mention, too, before we get to what you're up to right now, uh-huh. um, one, of, one of the artists that you had some time with is one of my favorite musicians, Trent Reznor. And I just oh, wanted yeah. to hear a little bit about how you worked with him. You were and was it um, you were advising him, I think? I was advising him. It was quick. Um, basically, a friend of mine uh, was his tour manager for a decent stint, I think. And uh, he, that tour manager and I met through the Bette Midler gig. And so he was a road manager on Bette Midler. And uh, so we got to know each other. Fast forward a few years later, and then, yeah, he gave me a call. And he said, hey, I'm going to be tour managing uh, Trent Reznor. Uh, Nine Inch Nails is going out on this tour. It's a world tour. And there is basically, there's a whole section in the middle of the show where Trent wants to play a certain number of tunes kind of acoustic. And I was like, okay, no problem. Like, I'm thinking acoustic, like, what are you going to like? Cajon or, you know, like, what, <laughs> what does he want? Yeah. He goes, no, he wants the entire band playing percussion. So all of his keyboard parts, he wants to play on like a four octave marimba. And he wants the auxiliary parts to be played on vibraphones and various mallet percussion instruments. And he wants, you know, um, uh, essentially what it, what it came down to is he needed like marching percussion, pit percussion instruments. They they didn't know that. That's what they needed. But that's ex- that's essentially what they had to add. Like they're like, we need it's it's in a inter, like interlude in the show. We have to be able to get them on and off stage. They can't be super. Um, delicate, you know, instruments and this mm-hmm. and that together, and they could ship while well. I was thinking, yeah, pit percussion. They've got the big wheels, just roll them right out. He's yeah, able- they have cases already, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. that's so, perfect. And they didn't really know any of that. So, um, you know, he said, can you like, you know, start just brainstorming what, what instruments he could use to take the place of these instruments? I'll email you, blah, blah, blah. And so I did. I came up with the ideas and he was like, you know what, let me just put you on the phone with Trent. And so we spoke several times and I told him kind of what he needed and he was just like, okay, I'm going to get management on it. I'm going to, we're going to order all the stuff. And he goes, but can you come and once all the stuff is ordered, it's going to get sent to rehearsals. And then I need you to come and supervise everything, the, the construction mm-hmm. of everything and making sure that state, uh, the, the backline crew, the, the techs know how to set up and break it down and case it all and all that stuff. So that's what I did. Um, I ordered all the, the equipment for them for that tour. And then later when all, when it all arrived and I was there on hand at rehearsals, kind of dealing with logistics for it, for him. And so, yeah, so it was really cool. Real mellow guy. Yeah. So it was a fun project, you know, just, uh, Josh Fries was on drums then. And, uh, I was just going to ask who, who was playing yeah, drums then. Elon was playing, Elon Rubin was playing guitar. I think that was the first time you ever went out with, with, um, with them. Mm-hmm. This is like 08. So it was mm-hmm. right they had just gotten Elon and then um and Josh was uh drumming then. So That's and then Josh, Josh ended up playing like some crazy drum kit like made of like trash cans with like heavy chains on and stuff like, <laughs> on to act as snares and yeah, so it was cool. It was really cool. 
That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. That was, so, that was my stint with that. With, with there you go. Right. And it, and that's <laughs> just it's another way that you can kind of like lend your unique expertise to yeah. another um, genre of music, another you know big act. That's yeah. that's fantastic. No, um, yeah. So I want to spend a little time talking about what you have going on right now. Okay. Um, and you are you just recently signed to Ropadope records. Yeah. Right. And I just want to ask you, um, the modern icon imprint, can you talk a little bit about what that means? Oh, essentially modern, I it's, it's a sub label under Ropadope records. Mm -hmm. And so I, a friend of mine runs that imprint boutique label under Ropadope. And so I signed to him or signed to him and, and Modern Icon and to Ropadope kind of simultaneously. So oh, that's perfect. So, so Modern Icon is the the boutique record label subsidiary of, of Ropadope that that did all the nuts and bolts. So we produced it for under Modern Icon and, and did all that and then delivered it to Ropadope. And then they handle all the larger scale stuff, getting it on every platform and and whatnot. So that's so great. Okay. Yeah. I just, I needed to ask about that. Cause I was like, that sounds, it just sounds like perfect. I don't know what, <laughs> what it is about it, but it sounds perfect. And so this release, you just released this single yeah. and um, I, I am such a fan and I know we were talking about um, just the, you know, the, this, this single that you put together, but it's really kind of two songs joined. Um, and it's so it's so incredibly beautiful. And I just want you to talk about that. Thank you. Um, well, okay, first of all, the album, which will be dropping in on October 1st, it's a live album. I've been doing live shows in New York while on breaks from um, Fleetwood Mac in between tour legs. And uh, so I had record, I've recorded basically every show that I did. And I put together a great band. Um, Majority of the guys in the band are guys that I used to go to Berkeley with. And uh, so the, the aside on as far as the band, uh, quick story is that uh, three of us got together. All of us had careers that went in different directions and different genres. But we used to all play like hardcore jazz fusion and play each other's recitals and, you know, around school and play sessions together and whatnot. And um, we all got together uh, in New York for coffee and it was like, wouldn't it be so great if we got to, you know, we played that music again. Like I've gone off and I'm, now I'm playing rock and roll gigs and um, the other guy, uh, Adrian Harbum, he's a drummer. Mm -hmm. He ended up um, working a lot in kind of like the funk world. He was working with a lot of New Orleans musicians and then Bruce Flowers. Uh, he's a pianist and keyboardist, um, great jazz pianist. And he ended up being in like Marcus Miller's band and David Sanborn's band. He'd taken like a decade plus hiatus from music and he was looking to kind of get back in. And so we're like, let's book some gigs, you know? And so we, I, I just kind of took the bull by the horn and I said, okay, I'm going to book some gigs. And, and, and um, this is, this is what I want to do. They, they decided like they're fine with it being my project. So I like, I, filled out the band per their suggestions of some other New York cats on guitar and bass. And then we, um, I put together a set list of stuff kind of in that genre of seventies fusion, Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis, George Duke, Billy Cobham, as well as like kind of new Orleans inflected stuff playing like meter stuff, Dr. John, 
And so we just, I just started booking gigs. So, and it went, just the vibe was so great. It went really well. I'm so happy that like, I actually got multi-track recordings of every show we did. Mm -hmm. And so once the pandemic hit, I was kind of like, I had already been toying with the idea of, of doing an album. I was like, well, I'm sitting on all this great live recorded stuff. I was like, yeah. why, well, why go into this? Well, first of all, physically going into the studio was like not going to be able to, I wasn't going to be able to do it. I was already in talks with Roku Dope about doing something. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, Adrian, the drummer is like, well, I have a relationship with Roku Dope too. I have a boutique label through them. You know, we can take all the multi-tracks, we can pick and choose, mix it down and really, and, you know, so I was like, bet, let's do it, you know, so made a live album. So, so that's, that's essentially what the project is. It's a live album. Uh, it's going to be basically Taco Hirano live in New York, uh, releasing in um, October 1st. Uh, and we recorded the shows at a club called New Blue. And I think you've, you may have heard of it. There's, mm -hmm. there's been a lot it's a really hip kind of underground, literally underground basement jazz club. Right, right. And it's and it's NU, right? NU. N-U-B-L-U. N-U-B-L-U, yes. Yeah. So I'm calling the album Blue York because it's kind of an homage to New York and homage to all the artists of New York and around the world, definitely, that got affected by, by the pandemic. But having lived in New York for the last decade, it was just kind of like, you know what? It was, it was tough. And it's an homage to live music. Those, you know, the materials recorded right before shut down. Even one of one of the last gigs ended up being had originally been booked like in, you know, the week of shutdown. I think it was like March 20th. So obviously we had to we had to cancel it. So wow. So all that to say, I was like, that's what I'm gonna name it, Blue York, B-L-U York. Mm -hmm. so, um, and then we were in the midst of mixing everything, and then uh I already knew that this track with my dear friend Keon Harold, trumpet player was just like a barn burner. It was just so hot. I was like, oh, mm -hmm. we got this first. So we released a quote unquote single. I don't know if they really do that in jazz, but a single, an advanced release, that has to be it. That'll make a big splash. And so we had already had that mixed and um, we were in the midst of mixing all the other tracks. And um, then I got the call to do Seth Meyers. And so then I, I we, talked with the head of Ropadope and said, is there any way we could release this as a single? We'll get it mastered and ready to go. And can it be released right before Taku is appears on Seth Meyers? And the label needed like basically like a nine day lead time for to get all its ducks in a row, getting all the metadata and getting it all to right. every streaming platform, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It turned out it was like exactly 80 days before my appearance on Seth Meyers. Oh, wow. Or 90 days before. So yeah. they're like, yeah, let's do it. So we're like, okay, we can, let's get it mastered and deliver just that track like next week. And so we did it, got it up and running. So we released the track July 16th on a fr that Friday. And then that next Monday I was on Seth Meyers and he was already plugging it. So I was like, amazing. Oh, so great. I yeah. absolutely love it. Yeah. And he plugged it. Yeah. Yeah. He plugged it every night and he, and he pointed out the fact that you were the first percussionist that they had had. Yeah, you know, sitting in with the band. Um, yeah. I love it. It's so yeah. great. I love yeah. I love what they do there. You know, I mean, for for just to focus on the drummers and have a new drummer sitting in every week. And, yeah. you know, Eric, Eric Lederman does such a fantastic job of booking um, the drummers in for that yeah. spot. And I love that you were there. And when I heard 
we were going to be on. It was a, <laughs> yeah. it was so great. I couldn't, and so, he, just reached out, he just reached out to me like via Instagram. Like I just had like a, an, a DM from him in my Instagram. He's like, I didn't know who he was. And he's saying, would, would you be interested in doing Seth Meyers? You'd be the first percussionist. Hit me back if you are ASAP. I was like, oh yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so, so it was fun. It was fun. It was a little bit of a challenge because at the same time, I did, I kind of had to fill the role of the drummer, you know, mm -hmm. so it wasn't like I was able to float on top of a drummer laying the foundation. And you, I still, at that point, then I had a full rhythm section relying on me to like, really set the pace. So I did do like a fusion kit, you know, so like if yeah. I'm playing home, then I'm actually playing like kick and snare with my feet on like tonic pedals so that they still sonically feel that foundation, you know, in a rock. Yes, group. absolutely. Yeah. So that it was filled out in yeah. that way. Yeah, that is definitely challenging. Um, yeah. You know, and hopefully when things get back live in, in the, you know, everyone's able to like get to the studio. Uh, it was fun. I actually saw the show years back and it was, it was a lot of fun. Just the interaction. Uh, Zach Dan Danziger was the, was the oh, guest cool. on that day. Um, yeah. So great. It was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you have the single out right now and I will link to that in the YouTube description. And then the album drops October 1st. So we can all be looking forward to, to yeah. that. Um, yeah. so, so it's going to be called, is it Taku live from New York? Is that what you said? Um, the album name is blue York, oh, like blue York. York. Yes. Why York? Blue York. But yeah, it'll be Taku Murano live in New York, in live place. in New York. Okay. Perfect. So blue York and it's B L U York. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure we <laughs> get that right, but we'll yeah. put that information in okay. the description as well. Um, and I just, I love everything you have going on. I always, every update from you, Taku, is always just fantastic. And you're, like I said earlier, you're always doing something new and exciting. So, um, you. you know, keep keep doing what you're doing. It's it's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. For really? sure. Thank you yeah. so, so much for coming on today and spending some time with us. And I hope I get a chance to see you in person soon. I hope so, Sarah. Definitely. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in today. Join us each Tuesday for new episodes of Sarah Hagen Backstage.